That smooth Christian jazz you're hearing means you've tuned in to Same Old Song, the lectionary podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm your co-host, Aaron Zimmerman. I'll be joined by Jacob Smith as each week we break down the lectionary readings for the upcoming Sunday to give you something to think about, and if you're a preacher, to give you something to preach about, and no matter who you are, to give you a connection to the never-changing message of God's grace for actual people like you. Unzip that monogrammed faux leather Bible carrying case and cover, pull up a chair, and let's dig in. Welcome to another episode of The Same Old Song. I'm uh, here with Aaron, and we are punching them out. And so, uh, praise God. So um, Good thing uh, we went to seminary. <laughs> Amateurs shouldn't try this. <laughs> So many years of biblical training went into what you're about to hear today. Uh, that's absolutely right. Years and years. And so, um, and a little bit of inspiration from the Holy Spirit. Just a little bit. So, you know, Jake and I went to the same seminary. I don't know if you listeners know that. Uh, Jake finished before I did and uh, went into the throes of ministry. And I'm still catching up. Still, after all these years. No. Catching up. Anyways, but there's some good times. Good times. We'll have to have another podcast of like untold stories mm. of seminary and what happened on the porch. Yeah, um, I uh, I actually miss those porch days because I you know, left yeah. before they were We all formed. lived in these really cheap houses in Ambridge, Pennsylvania, because they're all. I mean, they're not cheap like poorly built. They're just you know that's what they're area. affordable. So we yeah affordable housing, and uh, lots of times on porches. Yeah, sitting on porches, falling off porches, <laughs> lots of things happened. <laughs> We had a great porch. There was one time I was uh, locked out of my house for like uh, two hours, and I just sat on the porch waiting for my wife to come home as it snowed, <laughs> and I didn't have shoes on. Of the bay. Oh, I, really? No shoes? What was? Yeah. What was? What were you doing, Jacob? I just like wanted to book out and grab the paper really quick, and then the door, <laughs> like the wind blew and the door shut behind me. I was like, son of a... And so I was like standing out there in the freezing cold with no shoes on. And anyway, so, but, um, um, and, you know, and at that moment I was praying for the springtime. And that's where our reading from Second Samuel 11, well, 1 through say, 15 kicks off. Well, I will say, readers or listeners, you've now learned why Jacob Smith has only seven toes. So, Second <laughs> uh, Samuel chapter, yeah, springtime. Kings go out to battle. So this is the David and Bathsheba story. Uh, we'll talk about it. And then we continue in St. Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus yep. in present-day Turkey, the letter to the Ephesians, uh, now in chapter 3. And we go into John. We break from our trend. We've been in Mark, uh, Mark's gospel, but uh, you'll remember there was a reading skipped or a, a section of verses skipped in last week's Mark reading. It was the feeding of the 5,000. Well, we come back to it today, and we hear it, except we hear it from John's in the version that John told. Yeah, the, the Johannine version of this uh, story. <laughs> I always if like say, reach for my whole story. If you say story. Johannine, I will come out of sabbatical, and I will punch you in the throat. Because <laughs> yeah. nobody knows what you're talking about. You know, the Not Johannine really. perspective. Um, yes. Let me tell you about I the Johannine. I find the Pauline epistles are... <laughs> Anyways, don't do that. <laughs> don't do that, please. So, um... If you say Corinthian correspondence, yeah, I will. I will to doubt your salvation. You. So um, right. uh, here we are, and uh, um, this is a very, very interesting section in Second Samuel. Uh, this is a very important section in Second Samuel. It represents a pivot, um, and it opens up right at the beginning in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle. 
Uh, what's that say again? When kings go out to battle. Uh, where is David? David remained in Jerusalem. He's taken a nap and... <laughs> He just you got know, a new beer fridge and an electric yeah. smoker. I can't blame him. He's that's up there on the roof. He's, he's, got, got, his he's got his green egg. He's got his green egg. Yeah, that's right. And so right. his little green egg and uh, smoking some quail. That's right. Throwing and back um, some modelos. You know, he's got a nice spread of hummus and lubna on the table, <laughs> and he's enjoying his olives. But anyway. Some <laughs> Grape leaves. <laughs> he probably was. It's the Mediterranean. Anyway, uh, Jerusalem there he is. sesame baguette. So anyway, but <laughs> <That's> right, <laughs> it's actually a thing. Um, uh, but there he is. And but you notice he's not at war. He is like a regular king. And there he looks across the deck and he sees the lovely Bathsheba, Bathsheba, excuse me, daughter of Ilium, and uh, who's the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And um, not your eye heap, common mistake. Boy. So anyway, he, like every other king, uh, that's uh, that um, uh, good old Samuel warned the people about, uh, he takes Uriah the Hittite's wife. Yeah, and there's something, there's some stuff going on here, like the fact that she's on the roof bathing and apparently not taking much of a precaution to hide herself. I am not, <laughs> this is not slut-shaming here, I'm not, I'm just saying like human <laughs> beings are complicated. Um, and, uh, this is, these are two human beings who are both problematic and David clearly is the one who abuses his power in all kinds of ways in this passage. I'm not sort of saying it takes two to tango. I'm just saying the story is a little bit more complex than we sometimes make it out to be. She absolutely knew where she lived, Mm -hmm. uh, and in whose view her rooftop sat. Um, well, and and you're right. uh, I mean, he's a tough nut, you know what I mean? I mean... If you if you read this text closely, I mean David's like trying to cover his sin up, and he's like, you know, hey, uh, you know, he gets him drunk, and Uriah's like, oh, I'm gonna, you know, I'm a military man, I'm sleeping at the, I'm sleeping at the door, you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, there was and, sort of uh, this thing like no sex while you, while your men are at battle, mm-hmm. like you're not going to allow yourself to indulge that appetite that your men, your soldiers, you you want to suffer alongside them, suffer with them, you want to. You know, as they say, good leaders eat last. Like you so, that your, just tells you the kind of guy first. he was too. He's intense. He's like upstanding, intense. Yeah. But it's also the... ironic too that she's up there purifying herself after her period. Like there's some religious. You know, she's following those kinds of routines and stuff like that. Um, but uh, ultimately, what happens is David has put himself in a place where he is not supposed to be. Uh, one might say that Bathsheba has put herself in a place that maybe was not the wisest place for her to be. Maybe she, or maybe she wants that. Maybe he knows she's going to be there. Maybe he's been checking her out for a while. Who knows? But there's, um, usually when you find yourself in a position where you're like, I was just walking along and somebody mm-hmm. thrust this vial of crack into my hand. I, you know, it's, uh, I don't know how it got there, officer. Like, usually, uh, there is often even subconsciously there can be a way that you've set yourself up for the thing that then you do that you kind of didn't really want to do but you kind of did want to do and just saying human beings are complex yeah all this to say though this is a very roundabout way of saying that uh this is a moment this is really the moment where david becomes like every other king and uh, and from this moment as as we all know uh, uh david and um and um um, Bathsheba lose this child as part of a judgment. Um, uh, David's uh, 
um, kingdom then. I mean, it just really begins to fall apart. The whole thing just becomes a mess from this moment on. And really what uh, uh, 2 Samuel 11 um, is intended to do is to uh, thrust us forward, to look for that good king, um, David's greater son, who... Um, who um, yeah, lays his life down for the sheep and uh, has gone to battle uh, with every one of our enemies, especially sin, death, and the devil, and our uh, propensity to um, put ourselves in those situations so that we might be redeemed children of God. Mm. Yeah, and I think, too, this, um, this passage demonstrates uh, the ultimate... F- it's kind of a, a, a big highlighter to show that the is project of Israel to have a king ultimately is going to fail. You remember way back when we first started reading the in First Samuel, the people wanted a king. Samuel and God said, you don't really want that. And they said, yes, we do. They said, okay, fine. And here you see kind of, in some sense, the beginning of the end. And it happens very quickly. You see just how fickle human beings are, how prone to failure human beings are. So even the best king Israel ever had, who was actually sincerely devoted to Yahweh, Mm -hmm. a man of integrity most of the time, still failed spectacularly here. And um, not only that, then killed somebody to cover it up. And the thing, this passage shows a lot of things. Like usually lies almost always come out. Mm-hmm. eventually, and this one does. Um, and also, you see here the fact that every single human being, even the best person uh, you can think of, has secrets like this, has issues like this, has moments in their life like this, and, and you see that. And, and so this is why um, the Bible doesn't end with, uh, with Malachi. It doesn't end with the Old Testament. It doesn't end with the promise of the one who will come. It actually ends once that that person comes in Jesus Christ. So this is another one of those texts that you want to point to Jesus and uh, always bring it back uh, to him and what he does for us. And and thanks thanks be to God. Um, uh, interestingly, though, the other thing that you can preach on is that Bathsheba and David end up being the parents of Solomon, uh, who will be the second best king Israel ever had and an important king. And and so it's just to say that God does not abandon you in your suffering and in your weakness and in the worst thing that ever happens to you. And ultimately, uh, Bathsheba and David are both um, in the ancestral line of Jesus's family. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, yeah, uh, and, uh, God and, doesn't abandon and, you ever. And Uriah is actually also remembered in the book of Hebrews as a man of faith. And yep. so... Um, you know, so God is at work in the midst of this really crappy situation um, to bring about his redemption. And you're going to see, by the way, in Second Samuel 11 next week, kind of the continuation of the story. And the prophet Nathan uh, takes a break from the hot dog business to tell David uh, what <laughs> what's going on. on. So stay tuned until next week. Good. And then we come to Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. Yeah, and so continuing with St. Paul, letter to the Ephesians, he's still kind of in this, um, uh, gosh, like doxology and prayer woven together as he's talking to this church. Uh, he, he ministered for a long time uh, in Ephesus, mm-hmm. uh, I think over a year, and when he left them, um, he was so tearful, and they, he yeah. actually, he, he, did, he was still, he was doing another journey, and he came 
kind of to see them and, and but didn't actually go to Ephesus, went nearby because he knew if he went into Ephesus, he'd just kind of be there forever. So mm-hmm. they come and meet him at this other port city and they gather together and they send him off and they weep. Because they just, I mean, there's real love and devotion. This is a pastor uh, who had real uh, care for this congregation. They cared for him. And so he's writing to them and just has this beautiful prayer. And the thing that I always, that always amaze, there's two things that always jump out at me. The phrase being rooted and grounded in love. This is the goal of every preacher. This is the goal of every sermon. You want your people to know that they are rooted and grounded in love. And this is the path towards growth in grace, growth mm-hmm. in your faith, growth in what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. A lot of people think you need to add skills to your toolbox and, uh, you know, just do try harder to be more religious, but what the growth in Christianity looks like is being ever more rooted and grounded in love, coming back to first principles, coming back to the gospel. And the second thing that always strikes me about this is that Paul has to pray that they would have power to comprehend the love of God. It, the love of God is something we throw around that phrase so much, and it's, mm-hmm. but Paul says here, you actually need, God needs to help you, give you, give you um, the power to even begin to understand the breadth, length, height, and depth, because the love of Christ surpasses knowledge. Yes, that's an amazing and beautiful thing. And most of us think God's love is like, nah, he's he tolerates me. Yeah. Uh, he's okay. Uh, God <laughs> loves me. A- I know. Blah blah blah. But it, God is like bananas crazy about you. Mm-hmm. The love of Christ surpasses knowledge, and that's for you. That's right. And that's a powerful thing. That you even have to pray for that. How many of you pray? I, I pray that I'd be able to understand God's love for me more. We almost feel selfish praying that, but don't, because this is what Paul prays for the Ephesians, and by extension, prays for you. That's beautiful, and that's absolutely right. And, uh, and, you know, and he follows that up by that last line there, uh, verse 21, now to him who by the power at work within us is able to accomplish abundantly far more than, we, than all we can ask or imagine, aka, you know, that being rooted in that amazing love. Right. Uh, to him be glory in the church, because that's the place where you should hear that. And in yeah. Christ Jesus, to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Yeah, because a lot of us think that that means what God can accomplish abundantly far more than all we can ask or imagine. We're like, he is going to give me that Chrysler 300. Yeah, that's you know, right. Like, yeah. we, we hear it as like, God will make your wildest dreams come true. And that's not what this is about. God can make your wildest dreams come true, and maybe he will. But what this is, what this is in context about is God is able to do the impossible which is to help you understand the love of Christ. Because the which, love of Christ surpasses knowledge, and you can't even begin to get your head around it. So you need God's help to do it. And this is saying that God can actually do more than you can ask or imagine, and He can help you realize how loved you are. And then when you begin to understand that, you realize you've been given more than you could have ever asked or imagined. You know? Yeah. It's, yes. it's that good. Yeah, yeah. It's and that there's, good. I, I get so uh, you know annoyed sometimes with uh, preachers and Christians in the church because I feel like everybody who walks out of the door every Sunday should just be bowled over by how loved they are. Yes. And that almost never happens. People yeah. walk out of church feeling like they got some good advice or maybe a little or bit of Or there's like a battle to song. fight that right. they need, and it's you know, like, and just like, come yeah. on, chill out. Like, and if, you know, and maybe because love has been preached in a way that feels kind of like, I don't Soupy. know. Yeah, and that's not what we're talking about. But but you should absolutely have your congregation feel loved. If if your congregation feels that God loves them, and to do that, they'll actually need to feel that you love them, preacher. Mm. Um, otherwise, it, it won't compute. Like, how can this that's person right. say that God loves me, but he actually is really annoyed at me all the time? So, um, but if you have people that feel loved, 
which is so crazy and never happens in the world, hardly ever. But if that happens in your congregation, it will be transformative. So that's what Paul prays for. And we'll pray that for you. Yeah. Speaking um, of love, mm-hmm. John chapter 6, Jesus mm-hmm. is going to dish out the, the Mediterranean food to the people on the yeah. shore of the Sea of Galilee. There's a lot of Lubna. No, I'm just kidding. So there they are. And uh, I love now the Passover, the, uh, the festival of the Jews was near. So... Um, uh, but there's, once again, if you remember from last week from Mark, the crowds are just following Jesus. They're pressing in, they're pressing in, and they get to this point, you know, it's kind of the end of the day. They're all exhausted, and uh, as we talked about last week. And um, and uh, the folks need some food. And, uh, yep. and uh, Jesus, you know, Philip's like, where are we to buy bread for all of these people? And he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. And Philip answered him, six months uh, you know that that give everybody a little bit of a morsel, but here Jesus is about wages, to take. Yeah. He takes a little kid's lunch, and you know, then I mean, just talk about. I mean, that that is the love pouring forth. He takes this kid's lunch, um, and he multiplies it and multiplies it and multiplies it to something that's just unimaginable, and uh, and feeds the crowds. Yeah, I, there's some funny things to me in this passage, like when Jesus asks Philip, "Where are we going to buy bread?" I almost feel like Jesus kind of snickering into his hand, like trying to stifle a grin, yeah. like, hey, Philip, <laughs> where are we going to buy bread? <laughs> yeah. And uh, and then, of course, Andrew's like, well, we can steal from, from this little kid. Uh, we didn't bring any, but we can pick on this little guy, take his lunch. Um, but, and, you know, there's a lot of people that will use this, and they'll use it to talk about what you, Christian, need to do. You need to take what God has given you, the little bit, the five loaves, the two fishes, mm-hmm. however metaphorically you want to, to see those things in your life um, and that that God will multiply those things as you give them out. First of all, the disciples had nothing. They actually had to steal it from this little boy. Yeah, that's right. Um, <laughs> so, so don't make this about that. And this passage is not about you. This passage is about Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, and by the way, if you're wondering how to preach this passage, as I was at one point in my life in ministry, I looked up a sermon by Paul Zoll and this was a huge lesson for me. This is a sermon that I think he preached when he was dean of the cathedral in Birmingham. And on this passage, he focused on one word, which is the word satisfied. Um, it says, uh, when they were satisfied, he told the disciples, gather up the whatever, mm-hmm. gather up the fragments and, and all that. So, uh, uh, and Dr. Zoll used that to just talk about how unsatisfied most people are all the time and how Jesus' ministry is to come and to take unsatisfied people and make them satisfied. Um, and he, you know, he then talked about the cross and the love and forgiveness and all of that sort of stuff. Um, and so that is just me telling you, preachers who are listening to this, if you, you're allowed to focus on one little thing, if the Holy Spirit moves you to focus on that one little thing and to then kind of use that as your jumping off point um, as you preach this this passage. But um, uh, what else would you say about this, Jake? How else would you dig into this to, to give it to people? Well, I would, you know, one thing I would say too is, is that um, um, if you ever go to uh, the church that's, that commemorates this event in Palestine, uh, you'll notice as you walk up, there are, um, there are, uh, um, there at the, the altar, there are, um, there's like this marble, like, um, 
uh, beautiful mosaic floor, and there are four loaves of fish. There's four loaves there on the ground, and people are oftentimes like, why are there only four loaves? Where's the fifth loaf? Yeah, well, he's the fifth loaf, and he continues, Boom. and this is the powerful thing about this, is that he's continuing to feed the crowds, including you and I, Sunday after Sunday, uh, with um, because he is the bread of life. And uh, those who feed on him and his promises, though they die, they will yet live, for he will raise them up on the last day. And, you know, um, this is the powerful thing is that I love when the people saw the, the sign that had been done, they began to say, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. And uh, that is um, that is what the that is what this is all about on a on on a on a level the signs and the miracles they were there to confirm who Jesus was and the role of the messiah was three parts it was prophet priest and king and so when they're saying that and this takes place this is very similar this has a lot of exodus imagery here the people in the wilderness they're in you know they're there in the wilderness they've got nothing to eat and uh, that is where Moses also said that there would be one who would come after him who would be greater than him and so mm. this ties into that passage as well so um, so the miracle there is to confirm who he is and, uh, and that's the point of the miracle too he's continuing to feed you with his words of forgiveness and mercy and he's continuing to feed you with the bread that is his body so that indeed you might confess that Jesus is not only the prophet who was to come but the Messiah and the Savior of the whole world That's and right. uh, uh, yeah. they want to and at this moment it's so amazing they're so blown away that they are ready to make him king right now I mean this guy is raising the dead this guy is feeding people I mean holy moly who can stop us well, um, he's not that kind of king. Yeah, and that's so interesting. If you ever wanted to see what it looks like when someone has zero insecurity and no ambition for like temporary false praise from human beings, a person who cares not one bit how many followers he has on Instagram um, or the building of his personal brand, this is where you see it. Jesus Christ is asked to be king. He's like, nope, not interested. <laughs> uh, and... Um, Man, it is just breathtaking to see someone who has nothing to prove because he knows he's completely loved uh, and knows who he is. Um, and uh, the other little PS then we get here, and, and by the way, like this is a word to Christians who think that the point of Christianity is to take over the levers of political power. Um, Jesus apparently did not agree with that statement. Yeah. Um, uh, because his sights were set on something much bigger. It's not to say that Christians should not be ever involved in politics or that Christians should not be involved in civic society and public life, not at all. But uh, just we know that that's not the be-all, end-all, and we don't, we're not so foolish as to think that God cannot work in the lives of the world if, he's not, if, if God doesn't have somebody you know, in elected office or in whatever position you want to have the person. Um, uh, so, yeah. What do you want to say about that? Um, well, no, I agree with you. But, uh, you know, just um, uh, going, um, diving into Johannine theology, um, uh, the, um, yo, what, how, what, how do they, what do they say, Aaron? Johannine. Yeah, how do you say in your country? So, anyway, but... <laughs> how you say Johannine? So, but you may be wondering... Um, why all of a sudden there's just kind of this this addition part of Jesus, you know, them going out onto the sea and, uh, you know, and him walking on the water. 
And the point is, is that these two scenes back to back, what John is doing, and this is actually, um, and a lot of scholarship is pointing towards this, that John is not just simply some sort of random Greek document trying to make Jesus a Greek, you know, Messiah. But this is very, this is very Hebraic and very Jewish. So you have him, and uh, you have him feeding people with fish and bread, so with himself. But what's the deal with the fish? Well, the fish, um, you know, one of the things was is that the Messiah, uh, the Savior of the world, would consume the Leviathan. Um, and uh, this, um, and it would consume the great sea monster. You know what I mean? The great evil. And so here he is, and he's not only consuming it, but he's his 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 people are eating it as well. So this is the the image of the messianic age that is to come. This is a this is a preview. And then so Jesus then withdraws. The folks go out onto the Sea of Capernaum, or what? The Sea of what? Galilee. And uh, this is like Galilee is the land of the Gentiles, so it's chaos. And uh, John is setting the stage. It's going dark. And Jesus starts to do what? He st they're out there three or four miles. I mean, good grief. But Jesus is walking on the sea. So they've just finished eating the great beast of the sea. And now Jesus is out trampling on that chaos. And they are totally afraid. Um, but he says, out there on, in the midst of that chaos... Uh, the Gentile world, it is I, do not be afraid. And they wanted to take him into the boat immediately because they're like, this is crazy talk. Um, but the, and immediately the boat reached the land towards which they were going. So I just, I mean, I don't know how it happened, but that's, Hyperspace. that's, what's, that's what's going on here. And so this is, um, you have this back to back because you have the Messiah consuming the Leviathan. The Leviathan becoming his people now no longer afraid of it, consuming it, and him tromping out into the land of the Leviathan. So you have right here a confirmation of the one who feeds his people and he tramples death. That's beautiful. Well, I think that'll do it for John chapter 6. And uh, we'll see you again next week as we, we jump back into uh, the Gospel of Mark. Uh, we pick up... Uh, this story of actually no sorry I'm, I'm misspeaking I got so excited uh, we're actually going to continue in John 6 for quite some time we don't get back into Mark until uh, the end of August so uh, yeah we'll be in John 6 for a good while uh, lots of stuff to preach on so if you if you want to do a sermon series on John chapter 6 uh, people uh, we're you know again here's your opportunity give me a heads up all right, Jake's going to get some WD-40, and now uh, we'll see you again next week as we uh, bring you the podcast of The Squeaking Chair. Bye, everybody. Somebody's looking, somebody cares. Somebody wonders what you're doing today. You know we crucified him, buried him, but three days later, well, the stone got rolled away. And yes, Thanks for listening to Same Old Song. Hope you found some gospel nuggets for the pulpit or for your life. If you like what you heard, leave a review or rating in Apple Podcasts. Dave Zoll will be sad if you don't. Thanks to TJ Hester for audio production. And remember to keep that Bible by your bedside ready to rock and roll.